Today's guest is Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. She was one of the first women to become an ordained rabbi. She and her husband have served as co-rabbis at the same congregation in Indianapolis for over 30 years. She received her Doctor of Divinity and is also the recipient of several honorary doctorates. She has published numerous books relating to the spirituality of children, including the critically acclaimed books, God's Paintbrush, In God's Name, But God Remembered. You can find her books on Amazon.com and also on the link on our website. Rabbi Sandy has two children of her own and several grandchildren. Rabbi Sandy has spent a long career thinking about how to best listen to children engage them in spiritual and sacred topics, and learn from them about how the sacred is active in their lives. I have enjoyed reading Rabbi Sandy's books to my own children, and they've sparked many conversations about the nature of God, the beauty of God, and how we talk about God. This is a rich interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening to Parenting Reimagined. This is Parenting Reimagined, a place where the conversation goes beyond what we do as parents, and we take the time to consider what parenting teaches us, how it transforms us, and what being parents means for the landscape of our inner lives. I am Sherry Walling. Would you begin just by introducing yourself and saying a bit about your family and your vocation? I'm Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. Um, I was ordained as a rabbi in 1974, and I served a congregation in Indianapolis, Congregation Bethel Zedek, for 36 years. Gwen, who is seven, my daughter Debbie is 34, and she has and lives in Indianapolis, teaches psychology at a university here, and has two sons, um, Ari, six, and Levi, three. My husband is also a rabbi, and we have served together the same congregation for 36 years. Uh, I just retired in July and I'm going to be pursuing my writing and speaking and other work in the community. But he is staying on as rabbi of Congregation Bethel Zedek. Okay, so you have partnered in raising your children, partnered in life as a couple, and then also as co-rabbis? Yes, there, it was two positions here at the congregation. Uh, we worked side by side as rabbis of the congregation. Actually, we were the first practicing rabbinical couple in world Jewish history uh, because we worked together. Um, and uh, we actually were the first to have a child. You were one of the first female rabbis, correct? That's correct. When I was ordained in 1974, I was the first woman from uh, my seminary, the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, to be ordained. And I was the second woman in the United States, um, Sally Presan, who was ordained from the Reform Hebrew Union College, was ordained in 1972. And there was a woman who was ordained in Europe before World War II. Her name was Regina Jonas, and she was... Uh, unfortunately, sadly, tragically killed in a concentration camp. So, yes, I was uh, at the very beginning of Women in the Rabbinate, and um, 
certainly at the beginning of, you know, serving a congregation, and certainly no one else had two rabbis, a mom and a dad, except for our <laughs> kids for a little while. So lots of firsts in your family. It, it strikes me that, um, you know, leading a congregation is a very public vocation, and that your congregation, I'm sure, has looked to you for spiritual guidance, but but maybe also an example of kind of healthy Jewish family life. And I guess I'm wondering what it was like to raise your children in the midst of such a public sort of family vocation. That's true. You know, many people ask my kids now that they're grown, what was it like growing up with two parents as rabbis and, you know, growing up in the congregation where everybody knew them? And actually, they always answered the same way. They said, well, we really don't know anything different. This is the only life we know about. Uh, I do recall that sometimes they would um, refuse to go to certain restaurants when they were young because they would tell us, you know everyone in that restaurant, and before we get to sit down, we have to stop at every table and have a conversation. And so they would want to go to a place where we could just sit down as a family and and not be interrupted. But, I, you know, it's hard to say there were major issues. I think that we never expected them to conform to a different set of standards because they were the children of rabbis. Um, you know, we may, we helped them make some good choices, we think. Uh, probably the best indication that what we did was in the right direction was the fact that they uh, love Judaism. They are engaged uh, in their congregations and uh, they are raising their children, uh, you know, learning about the Jewish traditions and practices and they do that in their home. So they grew up loving Judaism and that's something that uh, meant quite a bit to us. And they've continued to, to model that for their children. Yes, they did. And, you know, it's hard for me to say how they felt <laughs> growing up with two rabbis, but um, we tried to make it as normal as possible for them sure. uh, and not have unusual expectations. I, I sort of wonder how you felt. You know, there are moments as a mother where you feel just a lot of pressure to keep everything together. And I'm thinking of what it might feel like to lead a congregation, but then also attend to the needs of your children. And I wonder if that ever felt like pressure. Sometimes, yes, it did. You know, I would go to the supermarket and the kids would be in the cart or one of them would be. And they would, like any other children, sometimes have a tantrum <laughs> that they would want a cereal that I didn't want them to have or whatever it be. And, you know, when I would be in the supermarket, it's a small Jewish community here in Indianapolis, you know, people would look as though, oh, my gosh, how could the rabbi's children actually misbehave. Uh, so, yes, you sort of did look around. At, uh, but I never expected anything different of my kids. And I think what really helped uh, me as a rabbi in supporting other families was the fact that um, people knew I was going through the same issues that they did. They knew my kids, too, had tantrums sometimes and didn't behave, that I didn't live in some kind of glass house. I lived with the same problems and challenges that they did. 
when I needed to get a babysitter because I needed to be at the synagogue, uh, they could identify with that because they too needed uh, help in order to function in in their life choices. So I actually think having the problems, uh, the normal problems of being a parent, uh, in some ways was helpful. What have you especially enjoyed about being a mother? I just loved uh, being a mother, and actually I still do. I don't think you ever stop being a mother, even though you have to pull back and not interfere, right? Um, it changes over time. It change, definitely changes. Well, I guess, you know, when you ask that question, I think back to the first time I held my daughter in the hospital room after everyone else had left. You know, there was always a lot of commotion. My husband was there. Everybody was in and out. And finally, everybody left for a moment. And I just held this brand-new baby in my arms. It was very quiet. And I looked at her, uh, and I said, I just can't imagine anything more wonderful than this. It was just this, I, I mean, I can still sort of picture this moment and, and call up those feelings that this was extraordinary. Um, I guess I could say I loved the surprises of being a mother. Children always surprise you, you know, bring you interesting gifts, ask the most amazing questions tell you the most amazing stories. I love the laughter, the intimacy that is very special. Uh, And I think um, I learned a lot about uh, trust and compassion and caring and listening and being open to moments without everything being planned. Hmm. Are there ways that your experience of motherhood reshaped your experience of faith or helped you to maybe reinterpret your tradition through the eyes of motherhood? Oh, there's so many stories I, I, you know, I could tell you about that. Um, Perhaps I'll tell you one about actually which resulted in my first children's book. When my daughter was about five years old, she was going to a Jewish day camp, and she came home with a picture that she had drawn there of an elderly-looking gentleman. And I, of course, said, that's that's wonderful. Could you tell me more about the picture? And she says, well, you see, they asked us to draw a picture of God. And she looked at me, and I looked at her, and she says, don't worry, Mom, I know God's not a man. Uh, You know, here I was, a woman rabbi, and, you know, we had talked a lot about uh, women and religious tradition, and she was pretty much on board, and she said, but when they asked us, uh, at first I handed them a blank page, but then they said I had to draw something, and this was all I could think of. And it was at that moment that I recognized um, that we hadn't really provided enough uh, enough images that could relate to a child's life for them to understand the divine or the sacred. I mean, the only image, they either had a blank page, which for a child is not all that interesting, uh, or they sort of fell back on this traditional image of a grandfather with a long white beard. 
but her world was far more imaginative and creative than that. And that's what ultimately got me to write my first children's book called God's Paintbrush, which was a book that invited children to see the divine or the sacred in their everyday experiences. That experience of my daughter, you know, really shaped the way I began to write about the sacred for kids. So you have written numerous books, and I'm familiar with God's Paintbrush and then uh, What is God's Name, Mm -hmm. I think is... In God's Name, yes. In God's Name, Mm -hmm. thank you. And uh, at least, well, both of those books in particular have just beautiful illustrations. They're very artistically rich. I'm just reflecting on what you said about the blank page is not very interesting, and the traditional pictures of God may not may not really be true to a child's experience either, but the way in your work that you've provided some alternative images um, is really striking. I mean, that was very important to me. I wanted everybody to, I'm not the illustrator, but, you know, I did have an opportunity to speak with the illustrator, and one of the principles uh, I uh, adhered to and hoped that they would was the possibility that everybody could see themselves in the book no matter, you know, their gender, their race, uh, their ethnic background. I wanted to say if we're talking uh, about the sacred and the holy and about God, everybody should see uh, him or herself in that particular book, and that was really important to me. And I tried to do it in the words, but it's even more powerful to do it in the illustrations. I was going to add a few other things uh, about please, what please. I, uh, you know, how being a mother sort of reshaped my own understanding of faith. Uh, you know, children have this extraordinary ability to see um, the unfamiliar and the familiar. I mean, things that we take for granted as adults because we've seen them a thousand times. They point to what's spectacular about them. Uh, so it's about seeing the sacred in the ordinary in ways that you never could have imagined. I mean, just looking at a dandelion or, oh, look up at the sky, see that cloud. Uh, you know, these are things we take for granted and we pay little attention to. Uh, the word in Hebrew for pay attention, actually it's two words, uh, is sim lev, which means to give your heart. And I think children do that. They they give their full hearts to what they see at the moment. And the truth is we don't often see it. I mean, I remember walking, you know, now more uh, recently with my grandchildren, and uh, they would say, stop. And I'm thinking, what do we have to stop for? You know, we have some place we're going. No, stop. Do you hear that? (laughs) And, you know, they said, no, I hadn't heard it until, until we stopped. Uh, so faith is about uh, noticing, stopping, giving your heart to the moment, and children just have this incredible capacity to do that. There are many ways in which children can be our teachers and, and reminders of no, how to do this. Absolutely. I mean, it's just incredible because, and I, I have a second chance to do that with my grandchildren. You know, I they just ask. You know, when you're with them, you you see reality a little bit differently than you do when you're only with adults. Uh, mm-hmm. I I do remember um, when my first grandchild was born, and 
I wanted to find the words to express my feelings because I'm always, you know, I'm a writer and I said, well, I've got to be able to put this in words somehow. And I, I couldn't find the words because it was, it's so extraordinary to see um, your child hold uh, his or her child. It's just an amazing experience of continuity. And I, in searching for the words, I remembered a a Jewish legend that actually I've just written a children's book on that should come out in mid-September. It's the legend of the light of the first day of creation. So in the beginning, God says, let there be light, and there was light. But then on the fourth day, God creates the light of the sun and the moon. So that's also a light. And so we ask, what is the difference between the light and the sun and the moon? and the light of the first day of creation. And this legend tells us that this is a light that you can see from one end of the world to the other. Uh, it's a special light that gives us a spiritual knowledge. And according to the legend, that light is lost, and that somehow in a little jewel it's passed on through the generations. And I ask in the story, where could we find that light today? And I have many answers, but ultimately, one of the answers I give is if you can't find that light, I'll let you in on a secret. The light can be found in the eyes of a newborn baby, and we Mm. call that light a soul. And that's how I felt holding my uh, grandson, that I could see a light that was different than the light of the sun and the moon or the artificial light in in the room. This profound experience of seeing a new soul. Yes, exactly, and, exactly. Yeah. You've you've thought and written and, you know, are a, a sought-after speaker about spirituality of children mm-hmm. and in this conversation of, of getting in touch with and letting children observe the divine in their daily lives. I wonder if you might comment about the spirituality of parenting the ways that that the acts of parenting, the caring for bodies, the patience, the you know, the process of of caring for children as they grow, how how you might see that as a spiritual activity or a spiritual practice? I definitely think it is a, a spiritual practice because you're nurturing new life uh and you're connecting in in very special ways. I mean, uh Look, spirituality to me is about connectiveness, of the ability to see beyond uh, yourself. And that's what parenting is all about. You recognize this deep, deep connection with another human being in very intimate ways. And you care for that human being beyond yourself. You see beyond yourself. Uh, in ways you never thought possible. Um, and you have to pay attention. I'll go back to those words because you can't keep your eyes off a young child. Uh, and that attentiveness is really a spiritual activity. Sometimes it may seem like a burden, like, oh, please, you know, give me an opportunity to do some of the other errands I need to do. But that attentiveness is a spiritual activity. 
including we create rituals for our children. You know, we have rituals at meals and rituals for going to bed and rituals in getting up in the morning and um, creating that kind of structure in life and repetition and rituals that make meaning is also uh, a deeply spiritual a spiritual activity. Uh, and it also, I would say, parenting means that we have to sort of um, leave space in our lives uh, for the unexpected uh, and be willing to be fully present to that moment because children surprise us <laughs> constantly. <laughs> uh, so I think we have an opportunity not to just be full of ourselves but to have this open space to experiencing something new uh, and and to grow and I do think that we grow uh, by parenting our children and they teach us um, along the way yeah what rituals have been particularly important in your family you know as you've raised your children well, there are a number of things that uh, have been important in terms of ritual. I mean, we always had a, a bedtime ritual. Uh, some of it is not particularly Jewish. It, you know, anybody could participate in this ritual. We would, as many parents do, uh, you know, read a story before the children went to bed. We would sing a song. But we also had a particularly Jewish ritual at uh, at the time that they were finally going to sleep, we would recite a Jewish prayer called the Shema, which in English says, Hero Israel, the eternal our God, the eternal is one. And that's very traditional in uh, Jewish practice. And we would sing it in Hebrew. And what's striking about that is I never knew if it made any difference until I saw my kids put their own children to bed and sing that same prayer. Hmm. So it had to have meant something very important, or mm-hmm. they wouldn't have continued that tradition. I think it was a sense of what is familiar, you know, what connects me to something bigger than myself that will allow me to trust enough to be willing to drift off to sleep. Uh, another ritual that was very important to us was on Friday night, uh, we would light candles for the Sabbath. And even if we were in a hurry, which many times we were because we had to rush off to services, we would still uh, light these candles and we would gather the children. uh, We would say the blessing uh, and we'd sort of wrap our hands around the light and cover our eyes for a moment and say the prayer. And then we would offer a traditional blessing over the children. And once again, I didn't know whether that had an impact on my children because many times they're saying, oh, I have to go, I'm busy, but they would stop. When they went to college, I remember them calling me the first night they were away at college, the first Friday night they were away at college, and they said, would you mind if we lit the candles together over the phone? So this sense of what's familiar, what brings you together. It didn't have to take a long time. It wasn't a long ritual. I mean, maybe it took two minutes, if that. It just reminded them of feeling secure, feeling loved, uh, feeling embraced, and that's something they wanted to carry on. That idea of connectedness that you mentioned earlier. And connectedness 
to the, their particular family, but also connectedness to a long tradition. They were part of yes. something that, you know, has been going on for generations that many people participate in on that same night. So the sense that they're part of something larger than themselves in doing this. And, and why do you think that's important? Because I, I agree with you. I think we're all, especially children, are longing to know where they come from and more more than just their nuclear family, but their sense of rootedness that goes deeper or longer than that. Sort of hearing you honoring that as well, you know, why is it important for for your children or, or your grandchildren to understand their Jewish tradition? Well, I think it connects them to something larger. I mean, often we think that believing is what's most important, that we should believe certain principles, and that's how we'll act out our life. Now, of course, that is important, and behaving is important. Like, how are we going to actually behave in order to live out those values that we consider important? But belonging is also essential. And we know for children, it's even more essential. They want to belong. You know, they want to belong to a group, particularly, you know, as they start going to school uh, or even earlier in a play group. They belong. You know, here are my friends. Here is my family. Uh, I also have a community to which I belong. And I believe those rituals help them develop that sense of belonging to something beyond uh, themselves. And also it's important for children to be able to tell their own stories and hear their own stories repeated back to them. It gives them a sense of stability and rootedness that studies have shown help them, you know, academically in all their studies and a sense of uh, belonging. You know, so even what many parents do naturally, telling Let's review the day. <laughs> Let's tell the story of the day and, and helping children tell that story. Or let me tell the story of someone in my family uh, or somebody in your family. What, what's their story? Do you, you know, we're lighting candles, but I remember these candlesticks are from my grandmother who used to make a very large Sabbath meal and do this. Then, then this becomes part of their story. And so partly they're connected in space by belonging to different communities, but they're also connected in time by hearing these stories and they become part of their stories. And as a storyteller, you're continuing that story through your books, through the speaking that you do. I hope so. Yes. I mean, I really, <laughs> I hope to do that. Many of my stories come from questions children ask me. Hmm. Uh, they'll ask a question. Uh, the one child in my Sunday school asked a question of who is Noah's wife. And that started me trying to think of a story about Noah's wife and what she did because there's very little in the biblical tradition that says anything about that. Uh, or it may be an experience I have with children that makes me want to, to write a story. So I do hope it's a continuation of, the, of, um, of a long story that began ages and ages ago and continues to this day. I mean, I think storytelling with children is so essential. And sometimes you tell a story to a child and they look at you like, very nice, mom, but I'm not terribly interested. Uh, 
but sometimes will bring up that story at another point in their life and say, do you remember that story you told me? Because now that story resonates with where they are. Just love the way that you seem to have really captured kind of the native tongue of children, both through images and storytelling, that I think when you're not really mindful of of who children are and how they experience the world, the ways of communicating things about faith or religious tradition can, can be a lecture, can be sort of moralizing, but the way that you have come about it and, and your books really communicate this lovely native tongue of children, stories and pictures, and that religious traditions bring a lot of pleasure as well as instruction. Thank you. I appreciate that. I was going to say that I think that's what stories do better than lectures. I mean, we Children need to learn information. And so they go to school and they get a certain amount of knowledge and uh, you give them information along the way. But stories uh, don't have to do so much with what you know is what you remember because stories create uh, images and experiences in your mind. And you may know facts, but you remember stories. It doesn't mean it doesn't increase your knowledge, but the story has this ability to stay with you uh, that often some facts don't. (laughs) Because you can always look those facts up. Oh, let me check. I don't remember the date when this happened. But stories sort of become part of who you are. uh, And they become part of your story. And whenever I tell stories to children, I never tell them what the lesson they're supposed to learn from it is. I never tell them the moral because they take different lessons from stories than adults do. And it's amazing when I do this, I find out pieces of stories I never, I never thought of because children come to it from their uh, vantage point and their experience. So I always ask them what they like the best in the story, or is there any part of the story that's about them? Who would they be in the story? So they're not factual information. I, uh, information. I don't ask them what, who's what character and what did that character do. I, I want them to be, where do they fit into that story? What, what really struck them as the most important part? And that's the beginning of a conversation. Uh, then you're not lecturing. You're really listening and, and talking to children where they are. You're interacting. It's so important. So many people feel they can't have a conversation about spirituality or God or faith with children because they uh, are not abstract thinkers and therefore they can't deal with these large questions. So that's a big mistake. Children have an innate spirituality, and they can deal with these questions as long as you provide the right kind of language. It's not the concept they can't deal with. What they need is a language to express all these feelings, and and it's up to adults to provide that language because they have a faith and they have a spiritual life. So how do they get to express it? Uh, And, of course, stories are one of the most powerful ways to do that. Hmm. Well, that, that's kind of the end of the formal questions I wanted to ask you, but, but anything else you want to say or, or maybe I should have asked you about but didn't? Uh, oh, gosh. I, was, I could add something like this. You know, parents are very shy about talking uh, spirituality or theology or religion with their children, and I always say just remember the people who built the Titanic were experts. <laughs> and Noah, who built an ark, was an amateur. 
you don't need to be an expert. You have to trust yourself and you have to uh, listen to the questions your children ask and be open to answering them as best you can. And you don't have to know all the answers because some of these questions are really huge questions. And the truth is philosophers have been discussing these questions for ages. So it's okay to say that's a really big and important question. I don't know that I have the answer, but I would like to talk with you about it. I'd like us to talk about it together. That doesn't dismiss the child. That says, wow, you really asked a really big question, and this is Hmm. something that we can explore together. What a wonderful opportunity to share something with a child. And the other advice I guess I would give is this, you have to explore your own spirituality before you're able to help children in their spiritual life. So I'll give you an example. I would say I first discovered faith or learned about faith in my father's arms. I used to go down to Atlantic City to the beach every summer. I lived on the East Coast in Philadelphia, and I, my father would come on the weekends when he was done work, and we would rent a place and live there um, during the summer, and I'd love to jump in the waves, and I loved the beach. And one day I was toppled by a wave, and I was caught for a moment in an undertow. And now I knew the ocean wasn't only a friendly place, but a potentially dangerous place. So my father would come down on the weekend and he would notice I was no longer jumping in the waves, but sort of staying close to shore. And he didn't say a word. He just picked me up in his arms and carried me into the ocean and carried me over the waves until I could go back in the water again. Hmm. And I thought... He did it with you. He did it with me and it was his... He didn't lecture me. He didn't say, oh, there's nothing to worry about. Go back in the water. Uh, He simply carried me over the waves. And to me, that's what faith is about being in, feeling embraced by those arms that carry us over the difficult times until we're able to stand up on our own again. And everyone has an experience, or most people have an experience like that. And if they could reclaim that experience, then it would be much easier to engage children in in a spiritual life. Because they'll found that, you know, I realized, what was that spiritual experience? It wasn't a textbook, which I had spent many years learning in rabbinical school. And, of course, all that was important to me in my growing. But this notion of... Um, faith and trust uh, and courage and what makes that possible, that all came from that particular experience. And if we could reclaim those experiences, then I think we can create them for our children as well. Yeah. Yeah. It requires some inner inner uh, inner work. That, that sounds so Right. And hard. I don't think you need... Don't well, it hard is. Work. It's hard. Uh, but I don't think people need to do it alone. I do think belonging to a community is very important. With other, to share with other people, what do you really care about? What if we talked about how do we engage our children in living uh, a life that pays attention to what is holy and sacred? How do we give them courage in difficult times? How do we encourage them to be compassionate and kind? Uh, those are all things that need support as well. And that's why I think belonging to a community that 
tries to do that and live out that kind of faith helps uh, individual parents as well. I mean, sometimes we think about faith usually just through language, but children pay a lot more attention to what we do, and living out our faith is really critical. So do we create opportunities for our children to be generous to those in need, whether it be let's take some old toys and bring them to a shelter or let's collect shoes that, you know, don't fit us anymore and let's take them somewhere to help, you know, children who don't have uh, access to funds that can buy shoes. Uh, Can we serve at a soup kitchen sometime? Uh, And even beyond that, how do we treat children who um, are not part of the group? Yeah. You know, it's one thing to serve in a soup kitchen and another thing to say, no, you can't exclude that person from sitting at your lunch table. And I think children pick up on it, too, when we're engaged in conversations that are critical or harsh about others or, you know, this politician, what a da 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 and, and that sort of lack of graciousness within ourselves is is modeled to our kids. So then uh, when absolutely like what do we do when we're frustrated? I yeah. you know, I like when you're in the car and there's a lot of traffic and you really need to get home and you know, maybe there's a child in the back seat who isn't terribly happy, you know, how do we respond to that situation that helps our children learn what they do when they're frustrated and things aren't going right? Uh, how do we apologize? Do we say we're sorry we made a mistake? How do we uh, model forgiveness? So faith isn't only about talking, it's really about doing it, and, and it's really about what we do every day, not just what we do on uh, a Sabbath, on Friday night, Saturday, or Sunday. Uh, it's what we do every day. Those are the most important models for our kids. Well, thank you for, for sharing your wisdom and, and reflecting on, on your career and on your family life. I really appreciate the conversation. I think it will be um, hopefully really encouraging to to those who listen to it. Well, thank you. This is the end of my conversation with Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg-Sasso. As always, you can interact with other people about the content of the podcast by commenting on the website, apparentingreimagined.org, or commenting on our Facebook. If you know of other parents who are doing inspiring things or people who have shaped the way that you think about parenting, please pass their name along. I would love to hear from a variety of people about the ways that parenting is teaching them and reshaping them. I am Sherry Walling, and take care until next week when I'll be bringing you another interview with an interesting parent. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting Reimagined. If you like what you heard, visit our website, parentingreimagined.org, and sign up for our mailing list. You can also like us on Facebook. Thanks for taking the time to be part of this community of parents who's committed to learning the deeper lessons of parenting. 